In episode 28, I'll be exploring the personal attributes necessary to be an effective school leader in this current climate. Stay tuned. Welcome to Well-Led Schools with Adrienne Hornby. On this podcast, we talk about all things staff for being, school culture and leadership. Join me for incredible and rich conversations with a range of experts who will give you tips, tricks and inspiration to best support the well-being of the staff in your school and yourself. I'm your host, Adrienne Hornby, a health and wellbeing consultant and former school leader. I partner with schools across Australia to tailor and embed staff wellbeing action plans aimed at addressing staff burnout and building positive working environments. This episode is brought to you by our signature Well-Led Schools Partnerships, a 12-month program that brings leaders and staff together to create a shared vision for their school and empowers them to create an action plan that leads to needle-moving changes in school culture and morale. Doors to our partnerships open only once per term. Stay updated on program openings and sign up for the wait list at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash school hyphen partnerships. Hi all, welcome back to another episode of the Well-Led Schools podcast. In today's solo episode, I'll be chatting with you about one of my favorite topics. I absolutely love presenting on this in schools. I've just come back from three weeks pretty solidly working with leaders around this topic. And that is all around the personal attributes that leaders should work on developing in order to become effective and inspiring educational leaders. In order to be truly effective in this current climate, school leaders really must embody a mixture of skills, so cognitive, psychological and social skills. Having personal attributes such as self-awareness, empathy, emotional stability and resilience are just as important, if not more so, than those cognitive or more instructional skills required to successfully lead lead a team of people or educators. When school leaders develop these social and personal skills, they are better able to relate to their staff and find a place of understanding and common ground, which positively influences staff well-being and overall school culture. Today, we'll actually be exploring some of the research surrounding this topic, and I'll discuss why leaders can benefit from employing a well-being-focused approach, the personal attributes required for this level of effective leadership, how leaders influence staff well-being, and ways to begin building more self-awareness as leaders, which is a key aspect of personal growth and development. And let's dive right in. Before we actually get started with today, I, you know, I always like to start with my story when I'm presenting right across the country. And really, you know, I didn't start from a place with my, in my leadership where I embodied <laughs> much emotional intelligence or these key personal attributes that I'll be discussing with you. In fact, as I emerged into my leadership career, 
and worked under a highly instructional principal at the time. I myself was highly instructional. I was really focused on growth and data and output of my staff. And I also really came from the approach of having very high expectations, particularly around instruction, which is important. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not ruling that out, but it was really the majority of my leadership style. And this fared well when I led a group of relatively early career teachers because in many ways I guess they just did what they were told and went along with the way that I was running the team. Uh, But I didn't, in essence, have a focus that was uh, honed in on their needs as people or my needs (laughs) as a person. So this meant that as a leader, I uh, often overworked myself and my team. Uh, I ran with school approaches uh, that appeared, you know, highly instructional and strategic in their nature, which again is really good, but ignored when my staff said that they were struggling or that it wasn't working. Um, And I also focused on these approaches before I really truly built relationships with my team and my staff. Uh, so at the time, I actually probably couldn't recognize any of this in myself because I had very little self-awareness or emotional intelligence or self-regulation skills. Uh, and then, you know, I eventually learned and evolved my leadership over time. And I hope if any of if anyone who I've ever led is listening to this now, they can hopefully attest to the fact that I don't lead that way anymore. Well, I didn't while I was still in education. I really worked over time on developing my own personal attributes, focusing on myself and my self-awareness and building the awareness that others, uh, an awareness of how others see me. And this then meant that I was able to better respond to those on my team. Uh, I was able to support them best and Uh, Then that translated into classroom practice. So I began to have really highly effective teams, supported my staff in the way that they needed, uh, and that ultimately led to their increased engagement and fulfilment with their career. Uh, So I just want to begin with that because I always like to acknowledge that I think it's rare for somebody to come into the profession having that this knowledge and skills that I'm talking about. And, and when I present to leaders in this workshop, it's actually called Evolve Your Leadership uh, because I think we all have our unique strengths. It's just about building upon it and continuing to grow in our personal and professional lives, which we will do for the rest of the time that we're alive. <laughs> so um, without further ado, I will actually begin now <laughs> with a bit of the research. And that is really starting off with this focus around a well-being-focused leadership approach. And as school leaders, teachers and staff really continue to navigate a stressful time in education, it's essential that we as leaders adapt our leadership to meet the needs of our staff during this time. One of my favourite quotes is one that also tends to resonate with a lot of school leaders and staff, and that is people first, then pedagogy. That came from a Debraski paper in 2020. And I love this quote because it's so true. Um, Ultimately, while we do lead schools with outcomes um, that are reliant on our instructional approach, 
We also work in a setting that is full of adult people, not just little people, uh, and we need to focus on on them as well. They are such a valuable effort, uh, asset, if not the most valuable asset in our school. So I always say, yes, we need to put people first, then pedagogy, or we at least do them both at the same time. So we don't just focus on the pedagogy and, and not the staff in our school, uh, as well as, of course, the students and their well-being. And this motto really encourages school leaders to refocus their strategy and approach to factor in the well-being needs of their staff solely rather than solely focusing on instructional goals. And this is important because school leaders really do have the ability to influence staff well-being and mental health through their behaviours and their leadership style. And I see this time and time again when I work with schools. When leaders lead with compassion and care and aim to embody a transformational leadership style, they're more likely to inspire and motivate their staff, leading to a happier workplace culture and improved student performance outcomes. So while instructional leadership is really important in education, it's relatively, it's an older way of thinking and doing things. And transformational leadership still embodies the important aspects of instructional leadership, like having high expectation, like communicating our strategy and vision, like developing people and focusing on their instruction, the the students' instructional needs and goals and and then how we get there. So, you know, we're not, we haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We've just added on a few essential qualities uh, that are required to achieve staff buy-in, but also to develop our leaders uh, and ensure that everyone across the school is involved uh, in the overall development of the school. So when leaders are only focused in, on results and performance, they really do risk being met with resistance and frustration from staff who are struggling to keep up with the mounting demands of their job. Adding almost like a human touch and exhibiting vulnerability in our leadership approach can foster a sense of respect and trust between staff and leaders. Now, when I've talked about vulnerability before with leaders, I've had some leaders sort of clap back at me (laughs) by saying, well, isn't vulnerability weakness? And I'm like, well, yeah, there's actually two definitions of vulnerability. So you can be you know, a vulnerable animal out there who's, of course, subject to being eaten by a predator. Um, But also you can exhibit vulnerability by being open, sharing what you need, what you want, where you're at, um, and really connecting with somebody and sort of and meeting them at a level where you both understand one another and can empathize with one another. So that's the kind of vulnerability that I'm talking about. Not saying put yourself in a really vulnerable position where you're not safe uh, or, you know, you're a vulnerable person because you're weak. It's about embodying vulnerability for connection. Now, in order to be this kind of leader, we actually have to have the relative personal attributes required for this level of effective leadership. So this all comes back to the fact that being a leader in education, more specifically, not just organisations, in education is a highly emotional profession requiring cognitive and personal skills such as self-awareness and emotional intelligence. Now, the seven strong claims for effective school leadership by Leithwood et al. in 2020, one of the most heavily referenced leadership papers, I think, in educational leadership, 
shares that with a balance of these skills, an effective leader can build a school culture that influences the health and well-being of the staff that they lead ultimately leading to improved outcomes and performance. So, you know, throughout that paper, as as they step through the seven strong claims, this is claim number seven. So this is the icing on the cake. So above all of the strategy and the instructional goals, we get to this key point at the end. And it's challenging to be a good leader without first that initial understanding of ourselves which researchers describe as a process by which individuals are able to reflect on their values, identity, emotions, goals, knowledge and capabilities. So like I said at the beginning, when I began my journey, I really didn't know any of this. (laughs) I certainly didn't know my values, didn't have my own identity. I just kind of regurgitated, I guess, what my instructional leader uh, what her goals were. And that that's fine. That was the kind of leadership that I was under and I was really good at doing that. Uh, but I didn't really have that understanding of myself. And again, that I wasn't able to be flexible and um, more bending with that when it came to listening to uh, the perspectives of my, the staff in my team. So with a rise in staff and student mental health challenges, Educational leaders really must have a grasp not only on ways to influence student learning, well-being and curriculum delivery, but in essence on people management, particularly when our people are struggling and they are increasing rates of our people who are struggling. We need to be able to relate to those people uh, and to be able to support them, to manage our teams, to manage the dynamic of those that we lead. Uh, This requires skill, skill that we're not actually afforded with the opportunity to develop in our careers without years of experience Uh, and, of course, then that level of emotional intelligence to be able to fully assess what is happening in your career and your life and develop yourselves from there. We just don't have those professional learning or development opportunities in education for that, of course, because what's provided by our departments and our education offices is highly instructional work. Um, Unless you're a school like who employs somebody like me or some of those other really amazing leadership consultants or wellbeing consultants out there who support leaders in developing and reflecting on some of these skills. So when we come back to the seven strong claims for school leadership, it distinguishes the effective leader as one who not only applies strong leadership practices to influence student instruction, but also exhibits a selection of personal traits that influence staff motivation, their abilities, and of course, the team and working conditions. These traits are explained as personal leadership resources, which is a mix of cognitive, social and psychological skills. Social and psychological skills are the ones of focus here in this episode. So let's talk a little bit about personal qualities. The psychological and social personal qualities are just as I would say, if not more important than the academic or cognitive capabilities as a predictor of one success in education, educational leadership, uh, but also in life as well. So managing teaching professionals effectively requires 
qualities that influence the cognitive, social and psychological climate of the workplace. So these skills might include the ability to be empathetic, resilience, to have integrity, adaptability, enthusiasm, passion, flexibility, confidence, self-belief, the ability to support and scaffold collaboration, uh, self-efficacy in ourselves, but the ability to, of course, harness that in those that we lead, um, and, of course, self-discipline, just to name a few. The personal qualities the literature deems, though, as statistically significant for educational effectiveness. So this is funny. So when I talk about what some of those uh, more personal qualities are, you know, the list is endless and I can see leaders looking at me really wide-eyed in sessions. And I go, don't worry, you don't need to have every single one of these, Um, but it's good to have a handful of them in your toolkit. Um, But there are actually five that have been deemed as the most statistically significant for leadership effectiveness. And they were best explained actually by economists, Heckman and Kautz in 2012 to 2013, who identified what they call the big five. So these five non-academic qualities that are the most influential to leader effectiveness are openness, so being open to new ideas, experiences, being curious, creative and willing, conscientiousness, so being organised, productive and responsible, extroversion, so being sociable, assertive, outgoing and energetic, being at sorry, agreeableness, so being compassionate, respectful and having an ability to develop, maintain uh, and sustain trust with our staff and finally demonstrating low neuroticism, so having some emotional stability. So when I sort of reflect on those five key areas, Over time, those have developed, particularly in my leadership. As I said before, I wasn't particularly open to the ideas and experiences of others because I was really good uh, at moving forward with the vision of my highly instructional leader and instructional leadership is typically quite top down. uh, So that makes sense. Uh, I think I've always been quite extroverted. In terms of conscientiousness, you know, I look back and think, well, I wasn't always particularly organized and productive. In fact, I started my leadership career actually doing everything for everybody else. Uh, And that isn't organization or productivity. (laughs) Um, Being a good leader is being able to get your team to work in harmony and delegate uh, and, and, and all be able to achieve collective goals. Um, And then we've got this element of agreeableness. So I think I've always been quite compassionate and respectful, but, but the idea of developing trust has taken time. You know, that starts with building rapport with staff, not just telling them what to do, uh, establishing trust. So um, really getting to know them personally and professionally, uh, and then going on to maintain and sustain that, which of course is being collaborative, consultative, uh, and then being able to create and keep at the front a shared vision as a team, but also as a school. And holy moly, when I reflect on emotional stability, um, I certainly was really neurotic at the beginning of my leadership career without even realizing it at the time. I had very uh, little self-awareness and very poor 
regulation skills, self-regulation, emotional regulation skills. Uh, And this then meant that my anxiety just flowed onto my poor team. So in time, these things have developed. Now, when we actually come back to the research of Heckman and Kautz, it's really fascinating because they talk about how effective leadership actually relies on four of those areas more so. So they actually found that agreeableness, so being compassionate, respectful and developing trust, had the least impact on effective leadership out of the five. And as I read this when I was studying my master's, I strongly disagreed in education And I thought, ah, these guys were economists. (laughs) They're thinking in different organizations from things like education and healthcare. Because things are highly emotional and strongly reliant on relationships and connection in education, I think agreeableness, so being compassionate, respectful, and having trust is probably one of the most important in education. And I argued that and my I want to say professor, but I don't think she was a professor. Let's just say my tutor agreed with me. Um, and this is really important for us to, to remember, particularly as we're reflecting on our own leadership. Now, if we link that back to the research, care and leadership really involves embracing and exhibiting values, dispositions and behaviours related to empathy, compassion, advocacy, systemic critique, perseverance and calculated risk-taking for the sake of justly serving students, staff and improving schools. I would say that since the pandemic, so it really could be argued that now more than ever, it's a time requiring greater care, compassion, respect and trust in schools as teachers, schools and communities move through and recover from collective worldwide trauma that was inflicted by the pandemic, but then also still those raised stress levels uh, that we can experience in schools across the country. This really then funnels into our skills and emotional intelligence. And this is a very important skill for effective school leadership. And I'll touch briefly upon what emotional intelligence entails in this episode, but I do plan in upcoming weeks to dedicate an entire episode to this topic. So stay tuned uh, if you're keen to learn more about it and why it matters in leadership, because in, it in itself is a beast. Ultimately, though, to, su- to survive in and thrive in an intensely emotional and complex school ecosystem, leaders really require specific capabilities, qualities and social resources to manage the emotion, stress and steep mental health challenges that they and their staff are at risk or are facing. So in addition, the instability and competitive environment of schools nowadays really relies on certain personal abilities and this level of emotional intelligence to be able to cope, adapt and manage the global and local turbulences that are experienced. So what this is basically saying is that we can't run schools just like businesses anymore. We have to be highly responsive to the people in it. And um, this, of course, requires us to have emotional intelligence. So researchers really highlight how emotional intelligence is made up of four key abilities, but there's so many varied definitions. 
but the, some of those shared definitions um, and the shared abilities are as follows. So awareness, of course. So to be able to perceive emotion in oneself and others and having self-awareness isn't just about having an understanding of yourself. It's also about having an understanding and awareness of how others see you too. And remember that you might think you're self-aware, but are you aware of how others see and perceive you too? Then we've got self-management. So can we use our emotions to facilitate our thinking? Social awareness to understand emotions and emotional processes uh, of ourselves, but also others and groups. And of course, self-regulation of ourselves, but also others. So are we able to manage the expression of our emotions in ourselves, but are we able to respond to others to support them in that endeavor too? So to diffuse a situation rather than to rile it up is a perfect example there. Be able to read a room uh, and of course, in essence, control uh, others to a degree, of course. I don't mean to be manipulative uh, in that sense, but really to be able to read whether somebody's hot and cold and go with that and and and, and keep a situation or an experience uh, at a level that doesn't reach boiling point. <laughs> so additionally, Goleman's definition of emotional intelligence, and Goleman's probably one of the most profound in this space, combines um he talks about how emotional intelligence really combines personal qualities with social behaviors and competencies so these are things like communication and conflict management this was what i was kind of alluding to before conflict management isn't about having a scaffolded um, conflict resolution conversation it's about preventing it in the first place reading a room uh that's a skill that we need to develop And this, of course, adds the aptitude for relationship management into the mix. So we might be really self-aware and good at managing ourselves and have a good understanding of emotions, but are we able to translate those skills into managing the dynamics of a varied personality style group that is our team? Furthermore, in a literature review, Leithwood identifies empathetic abilities. So these are the ability to relate to the emotions, perspectives, and experiences of others. So this is another critical component of emotional intelligence. Um, I was just laughing on a phone call to a friend this morning. I always get called the perspective police uh, because it's important in any situation to be able to put yourself in the shoes of another person and think of how others might see that situation. And that's really important for us to do in education. In fact, it's my bread and butter and my role as a consultant, uh, particularly sitting in rooms with leaders or staff, is to offer perspective of those who aren't there or consider how they may be thinking and feeling in any given situation and present that uh, in any setting. So effective leaders must really first have self-awareness to recognize their strengths and weaknesses, to be able to act upon this knowledge, and then monitor and adjust their own behaviors accordingly. So without self-awareness first, what I'm getting at is that the other things are much harder to develop. So if we focus on developing self-awareness, on understanding of ourselves, as well as an understanding of how others see us, the other aspects of emotional intelligence follow much more easily. So 
with an understanding of myself and how others perceived me, I was then able to work on my emotional self-regulation because, of course, I started to catch myself when I would begin to ramp up, (laughs) become more neurotic uh, and catch myself in those moments and, of course, then be able to control my behaviour. Uh, Same thing in my relationship management because I was self-aware myself. I then developed an awareness of other people and their perspectives and, of course, could read a room better and was much better at my social and relationship management within my teams. So through the application of certain personal qualities and ability to understand the emotions of others and empathise, leaders, in essence, you know, The conclusion here is that they're much more able to influence well-being and work performance of those they lead. So this really comes back then to the leader's influence on staff well-being. The emotions of a leader really do have the power to influence staff well-being and emotions. And this is important because when our staff have good well-being and um, their emotions are in check, that then flows on to our classrooms and our students. And teachers' emotional states can reflect any perceived negative emotions of leaders, which have reported impacts on teachers' professional and personal lives. This is where I want to segue into, I work in schools where there are clear school-based issues like workload or challenging student behaviours that can impact on staff morale, well-being, endorsement of the school, but equally If staff don't feel connected with their leaders or their direct leader or the leader of their sub-school or their school, I can see how this impacts on school culture. I see it in the data. I hear it when I talk to staff. So I know that this is important and the research backs this up too. It's not just some of those school-based challenges that go on to influence Uh, how our staff feel, it can be the leaders. And we have to know, acknowledge um, and accept this in order to to move forward and develop ourselves. So, and that is done through encompassing certain personal attributes that are inclusive of emotional intelligence, which influence our staff's feelings of well-being, in particular, their ability to thrive or flourish. So not just survive, (laughs) Now, the research in this area highlights how exhibiting care through being responsive to the needs of our staff, students and communities, through adopting emotionally supportive behaviours, really reduces fears and anxiety. It builds a culture of trust, respect and solidarity, and this enables collaboration. School leaders play a key role in securing student academic success and well-being through the effective management and promotion of staff well-being, but therefore it's essential for them to have personal abilities that reflect good personal well-being and influence over the well-being of others. So it's not enough for you to develop a well-being action plan with me but not actually change the way you lead, connect and respond with your people. Staff see that at the end of the day. They might acknowledge, yeah, these initiatives you're putting in place for well-being are nice. But the way that you speak to me or interact with me or respect or don't respect me ultimately influences my level of satisfaction with this school and this workplace. 
And this is really not just me saying this. The research shows that teachers who feel supported by colleagues and leaders report increased professional well-being, which impacts student mental health, engagement, uh, workplace satisfaction, self-efficacy in relationships with the greater school community. And these factors play a huge part in shaping the overall school culture and This is important because a positive school culture is associated with improved student learning outcomes and school performance. So we've heard a lot about those different personal attributes, uh, about emotional intelligence, but if you're going to get started with anything, uh, it is with developing and building your self-awareness. And developing these personal qualities as part of that process is not a fix, but it's a dynamic process. So research actually suggests that some personal attributes, I'd probably say most, can be developed and improved with age and instruction. They're also shaped by family, schooling and social environments and they can change depending on influence, relationships, situations and experiences. However, effective personal and professional development is circumstantial and it's dependent on motivations, dispositions and commitment of the individual. So basically, at the end of the day, we land ourselves in a position of being the person we are based on what we've been exposed to, what we experience, role modeling, the kind of learning that we've engaged with in the past. So we accept where we're at, but we can certainly change our position, our leadership style and the person that we are. That is what the research says that we can do. And if anybody has done an overhaul of their life uh, up before now, me included, Uh, you know that this is certainly possible to to change, to rewire our brain, to learn, develop and embed those skills into the person and the professional that we are. So this brings me back to that concept of building our awareness. Um, And we begin by looking into our own self-awareness, but also on our leadership style by observing our thoughts, our actions, habits, behaviours, And we can do this by almost engaging in a form of a self-study. And what I always suggest to leaders is that building our self-awareness is best done in stages. So um, I usually outline four stages for uh, the development of our our self-awareness. And by no means do you need to jump up to stage number four, which is the hairy, scary one. Just start off with beginning with that understanding of your internal self-awareness. So who you are, what's your personality style, uh, how you work, and you can do that through exploring personality assessments that are free and online like DISC, the DOPE personality assessment, looking into your VIA strengths. And when I talked about the big five just before, the big five personality test, These are all readily available online. You can just search them into Google, but I'll also link them in the show notes. Another really great um, thing to dive into are your values. So when I was coaching one-on-one, I would work with leaders and staff to really dive into what their values were in their lives, in their professional lives, for their well-being, sometimes for their relationships. Uh, just so you get a bit of an understanding of who you are and what you stand for. Other things might include writing in journals, so um, buying yourself a journal and, 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 and writing in that each day, meditation. But I also really love personal and professional development reading. So 
when I first started addressing my burnout and my mental health, I started reading books, personal development books, which were weird and foreign. And I thought a bit hocus pocus at the start, but they were amazing for me to develop a bit of an awareness of myself through through reading these. But I mean, if you don't want to go that far, you can look into more professional books like Vertical Growth, um, The Mindful Leader, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, and, you know, more of those sort of personal development might be around A New Earth, so Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. Um, anything where you're getting to know about yourself and, and better ways to, to live your life. Of course, you can also work with reflective practitioners such as psychologists or coaches. Um, and, and this really begins to kind of spark that process. The next step beyond doing that work yourself is then to begin to expand this outward. So building a bit more of that external self-awareness, so how others perceive you. So as you're reflecting on these or you've conducted a test, sit down with somebody you feel safe and close to, so a loved one, partner, friend, close friend, and talk to them about your results, uh, what's come out, get them to unpack how they see you, be open to hearing what they have to say. Um, you know, a next little mini step up from this is asking those people to complete the assessment on your behalf, how they see you, being curious, talking about those results. <laughs> so I can tell you when, how I see myself is very different to how my husband sees me. I think I'm getting a lot, I know I'm getting a lot better now, but initially I was shocked <laughs> to see that he still thought I was highly neurotic. But then we would talk about say really all the time and you say, no, 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 just sometimes, just when you're tired or you've got a lot going on. So those conversations are really important because we could celebrate how far I'd come. I'd no longer lose it every day over small things. But when pressures and expectations began to build, I wasn't able to control myself so well. So that's really important for me to to, to reflect on that and have those conversations and to learn that about myself because then I can be proactive about how to address that. The next step up here then is to engage some the support of a critical friend at work. So working with another leader or a person at your level or even a mentor or coach at work uh, and seeking that critical feedback from them in terms of your professional practice, how you are as a leader or an educator, uh, and being open to that feedback. So this is up from the loved one or the close friend. It's somebody at work. And then the final stage, stage number four, is to undergo a more formal process for feedback. So like a 360-degree feedback tool where you receive feedback from people at your level, somebody above you, so a leader, and those below you. And it almost triangulates that data to, to give you a bit of feedback on how others see you. Uh, and you'll be more ready for this process with a level of external self-awareness, but also having undergone some reflective practices yourself uh, with loved ones and with a safe person critical friend at work. So that's it for this episode. Um, I want to close by really ending with that, how that whole focus on self-awareness is the first and most powerful step in recognizing our current approach to leadership 
and what we can do to be more effective leaders and positively influence staff. An effective leader must adapt to changing circumstances and ensure the well-being of their staff doesn't get swept under the rug as expectations and responsibilities in education continue to mount. Through the development of the personal attributes that I've covered today and emotional intelligence, leaders can become more effective at leading staff through complex times of change and a complex job, to be honest, and inspiring a positive and tight-knit school culture. In fact, the best leaders I have worked with under um, and even the staff that I've worked with have been those who have these personal attributes. Thinking of my last two great and amazing principals, Deb and Rob, huge shout out to them. Um, such great leaders with all of these skills. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Well-Led Schools. You can access the show notes for this episode complete with information links wherever you're listening to this podcast. We'll be sure to include direct links to those personality tests that I mentioned so you can begin exploring your traits and strengths and reflecting on how to utilize or improve upon certain skills and characteristics. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review if you haven't already. That's me signing off. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to Well-Led Schools. I look forward to connecting with you at adrianhornby.com.au. Here you can get in contact with me, learn more about my approach and join my mailing list. I'm Adrienne Hornby. Thanks again for your time and stay well.